Well, if you would, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, as we continue our journey in this epistle. Uh, if you've just joined us, this is Peter's last words, really, to his audience. Uh, it resembles 2 Timothy. That's Paul's last letter. And I think I mentioned before, a great study is to compare those two letters and see what themes are consistent in them, and they are. Peter's grave concern is, is the church needs to persevere and, and hold fast to the truth because heretics, false teachers are rising up, and we've looked at them, and, and Peter's not done with addressing them as he will here. It's interesting, though, his target is not the false teachers. He's addressing the believers, and we see that in chapter 3, verse 1. So if you would, turn there, and let's look at this powerful text. We're just going to look at the first seven verses says, dear friends or brothers, so again, we're addressing the saints, and he's going to repeat that in verse 14, or repeat it again later on in chapter 3. This is already the second letter I have written you. Now, most scholars are going to argue that's what? <laughs> First Peter, right? There are those who say, well, the issue is, he says, in this, this is the second time I've tried to stir up your pure mind by way of reminder and they're saying, well, 1 Peter doesn't really do that. Uh, there could be another letter that we don't have that the, the Holy Spirit didn't see included in the canon. That does not bother me. I mean, Paul said to the church at Colossae, when you get done, read the letter I sent to Laodicea. Where's the letter of Laodicea? All right. Uh, Paul wrote more than two letters to the church at Corinth. We know that. But these are the books that the Holy Spirit is seen to include in the canon. That's a whole other discussion. But... Um, I suspect, I think there's strong arguments to say, no, 1 Peter is the letter that, that Peter is referring to here in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, in which I'm trying to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. I want you to recall both the predictions foretold by the holy prophets, watch what he does here, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And you're going, boy, that sounds familiar. Yes, remember chapter 1? Chapter 1, he said... Uh, you've got the apostolic message, but even more sure is what the prophets told us. So we have the sure word, unlike the concocted fables that, that I'm being accused of delivering to you. If anything, it's the false teachers who are, are delivering this hollow words. He says in verse 3, above all, understand this. Uh, this text is so rich today. I, I love this passage. It says, In the last days, blatant scoffers will come, being propelled by their own evil urges, and saying, Where is his promised return? That is not a genuine question. <laughs> it's one out of mockery. Huh? Where is it? You know, that's, that's what Matthew has to address in his whole gospel. He has to answer two questions. Matthew's writing primarily to Jews. One is he's got to show that Jesus is the Meshua, the Messiah. But the next major question he has to answer in his gospel is where's the kingdom? If Jesus is the Messiah, where's the kingdom? Right? That's what we were looking towards. And the audience is asking the same thing. Well, where is this second coming you've talked about? You really can't think we believe this. For ever since our ancestors died, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately suppress the fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and on earth, was formed out of water and by means of water. Through these things, 
And if you're asking, what are these things? That's a great question to ask. The world existing at that time was destroyed when it was deluged with water, which is referring to what? What's he referring to? The flood, right? He's already referred to Noah earlier on, so we're coming back to him. In fact, in 1 Peter, he referred to Noah. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved by fire by being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I titled this Avoiding Spiritual Amnesia. <laughs> uh, Peter is going to stress that they need to recall a few things. And memory is vital throughout Scripture. Uh, this, there's been dissertations written on just the, call, the importance of remembrance in the book of Deuteronomy, for instance. There's biblical theologies written on the importance of memory. And you think about it, I just listed Scripture, recalling Scripture serves as a catalyst for gratitude, for worship, which the two go hand in hand, obedience, trust, hope. I mean, they're all tied together, aren't they? One article uh, written on the, the, the verb here, on the, uh, the word for memory, says, hence, all the church worship is and has always been historical, verbal, and personal rather than nature-oriented, mystical, or dramatic. That's what Peter did earlier on in the gospel, or in his epistle. He said, I recall what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. We recall what has happened to us. Memory is important. Look at the Lord's table. This do in what? Remembrance of me. It's recalling the past for the purpose as what we've just stated. Another scholar writes in his article on an appeal to remembrance. This is a great quote. It's there in your notes. The memory motif is one of the primary emphasis of the Bible as a whole. In the Bible, memory is rarely simply psychological recall. If one remembers, and watch this, in the biblical sense, the past is brought into the present with compelling power. Action is present is conditioned by what is remembered. It's vital. The reason you're, you're being asked to recall is to, to spur you on to do something, right? And not to forget. Yeah. The power is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the power is the Spirit. And, and, and the Spirit, Jesus told us in the upper room, right? I'm giving you the Spirit to help recall the things that I've taught you. <laughs> yeah, well, and the assumption is if you're recalling it, you're going to be driven to do it. Um, I've got several texts that I asked some guys to read. Uh, just listen to these verses uh, from the Old and the New Testament on the importance of memory.
here, the stress on memory. Again, it's a major theme throughout Scripture. I think about the book of Deuteronomy, having the Israelites recall the Exodus and what has transpired. And again, a variety of reasons why they're to recall, as we've just stated. Um, when's the last time, I'm going to put on my pastoral hat, that you've just spent a few minutes recalling what God has done? Um, Dick has been handling kind of our class, our Sunday school, the prayer request, etc. At one point, he took all of the answered prayers for the year and rehearsed them. We did that as a group. It was amazing. And you think, I, I forgot all of these things. It's so easy to focus on the needs of the present and forget what God has done in the past. And, and Peter's saying, listen, <laughs> these false teachers are coming along and they're attempting to undermine. They're, they're trying to have you drift. Don't forget what God has done in your life. Don't forget what we have taught you because that's what's going to keep you in the realm of worship and gratitude, obedience, trust, and hope. I mean, they're undermining any hope by saying there's nothing for the future. Questions or comments on this? This is huge. The importance of memory. Yeah. In uh, Judges 2.10, it says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, there arose another generation hmm. that did not know the Lord nor the works that he had done for Israel. I love it. Steve quoted from Judges where, the, remember the condemnation of the Israelites? Uh, another generation rose that had forgotten, did not remember these things. Um, and so scripture teaches the importance of memory, but it also teaches the downfall of forgetting. Uh, very significant. And if you have trouble remembering, then make a list and post it on your forehead, right? This is what God has done. Let me not forget it. Well, I'm starting to preach, so we shall move forward. Notice what he says here. I want you to recall, he repeats it in verse 2, and then he mentions the prophets and the apostles, which is really interesting because remember the false teachers, one, they have a problem with their theology. They're denying any future judgment. And then secondly, they're involved in immoral behavior, right? The two go hand in hand, by the way. And it's, it, I love how he's done the, the prophets and the apostles because the, the prophets verify that there's a future judgment. We saw that earlier on. And, and, and Second Peter, and the apostles are reminding us of our behavior, <laughs> right? So this two, these two groups fly in the face of the false teachers, and he's saying, listen, don't forget this. It's interesting he used commandment in verse 2 as singular. I, I, I see this as a collective idea, uh, and so it kind of represents all of the commands, or some see it as, as the love um, that uh, we're to have that springs out of all of the behaviors, but um, uh, it's probably more of a singular use of command, which I mentioned down there in your notes. So it's interesting, he appeals to the prophets and the apostles because it's, it's exactly what the, against what the uh, false teachers are saying. So remember, recall. Questions on that? Well, then he moves to a call to understand in verses 3 through 7. He kind of gives, again, this overview of the false teachers in the last day, blatant scoffers. They're not subtle. Uh, in fact, he's going to show you they're actually quite involved because it's by their own evil urges. He says several things that's very true uh, and, or insightful. First of all, 
when it comes to skepticism, one thing he says is it validates the prophetic message. What do I mean by that? What did he tell us? In, in, time, in the last days, scoffers will rise and they validate my claim. And, and Peter's not the first to say this. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 20. Look at this. This is Paul's parting words to the, the elders at, from uh, Ephesus. They had met at Miletus. It's such a sweet time here that Paul has with the... It's one of my favorite scenes in the... I, Tom Flynn was here, he'd start laughing at me, but it is one of my favorite scenes in the text. Uh, especially in the life of Paul. Acts chapter 20, as he's parting... In fact, you, you have to see verse 24, first of all. I think this is Paul's mission statement. Because I do not under, consider my life worthy, uh, anything to myself, so that I might finish my task and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. Isn't that great? To testify to the good news of God's grace. That's his, his, his commission statement. But then he says down in verse 29, I know that after I'm gone, all right, and I don't think he's just referring to spatial issues, when I'm pushing up daisies, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. Even from among your own group, men will arise, teaching perversion of the truth to draw the disciples away after them. Therefore, he says, be alert. So he said it, Old Testament prophets said it, there's going to be a day coming when false teachers are going to rise up. And what this does, these skeptics that we hear, ah, just validates the claim, you know? I hear people losing, you know, their dentures over here and, oh my goodness, look what that person's saying over here. Well, what did you expect? <laughs> we're in the end days. I mean, we just are. Um, just as they were then. Uh, one day is like a thousand, right? Or 1,000 years is like a day to the Lord. Uh, we're getting closer and closer to the Lord's return and you're going to see more and more crazies. It's just part of it, right? Uh, that's just how it is. We also see... Here, it displays a moral issue. Now, watch this. This, is, uh, these, this isn't an intellectual issue. And, I, you know, I've, I'm not sure I call it the privilege, but I've certainly had the opportunity to engage some folks who uh, have, uh, are very agnostic about the text. Um, and they have all these wonderful arguments, you know, and they've got the credentials a mile long, and they've get, written the books, et cetera, et cetera. But it really boils down, according to Peter, to this. Look what he says in verse 3. Being propelled by what? Their upbringing? <laughs> Their own evil urges. In other words, the bottom line, it's not intellectual. It's a moral issue. One of my uh, former chairs of a department that I taught at, he was spot on. There was some writings that were coming out in evangelicalism, and this guy was applauding doubt, denying the historicity and the veracity of the text. And several people were a little concerned because it was, it was subtle in his writings at that point. <laughs> and my colleague said something very wise. He said, just give him time. They'll show their true colors and what's lying underneath. And it was a matter of time, and there was a moral failure on the part of this one writer, and you just see it. It was just, just as he said. And that, that goes back to here. 
there's an underlying issue, and this is the top of your notes on page two. I mentioned this. Heresy is not rooted in ignorance, having been misled. Rather, the theology is a moral issue. And that's the same thing we're facing today as we did then. Uh, there's a resistance to adhere to the things of the Lord. Uh, uh, I had a student who scared me to death. He was brilliant, and he knew it. <laughs> and uh, humility was not his issue, and there was some things, and I just pulled him aside. Uh, he, he got in trouble. Uh, they expelled him, and I said, I pulled him aside. I said, what's going on? Because this is something, something is underlying this. Well, now he's, he went on to Princeton. He's militantly gay. He's anti-anything fundamental, and you knew there was issues that were underlying all of this. Just, uh, he questioned everything. And questioning is okay, but we got to land on two feet, right? And that was where the issues were. And I, when every time I see this, I think of him. Yeah, the skepticism that was it was there was an underlying issue that was driving it. The skepticism of the false teachers is laid then out here for you before we look at the third distinctive, and that is what? What are they denying? What are these false teachers ultimately denying? That God is what? Sovereign, yeah, that God is absent is what they're arguing, that God is not intimately involved in the things of the world, right? That's what they're saying, and that by their very question, where is the promised return? This idea of, of questioning where is God and what He's done, I mean, we can go throughout Scripture, right? This, is, uh, this idea, Malachi mentions this, uh, we could look at Malachi 2 or Jeremiah 17, it's the same idea. Green in his commentary says, God is not, what they're arguing is that God has not intervened in human history. Empirical evidence showing that all things continue without change. Since there has been no changes, no divine intervention in the past, no judgment, one should expect conditions as they are to continue in the future. The promises of God have not come to pass in the past, nor will they come to pass in the future. And they, they mention this, right? Since Ever since our ancestors died, and they're the ones who prophesied about this stuff, they've croaked, they're, they're ashes, and, and nothing's changed. So why would I adhere? You can hear it. Why would I adhere to this? Let's, let's live life in freedom in Christ. Kind of an idea, right? They still have a little bit of this and of this. and they, it, it reminds me of Genesis 3. Satan says, can you really believe all that God said? Satan hasn't changed his tactics. And the same idea here, right? These false teachers are saying this. And so the third aspect of skepticism, they validate the prophetic message, displays a moral issue, and it results in mockery and unbelief. That's really where they're landing. Um, you just cannot believe these things of Scripture. And again, verse 5, Peter's clear. It's they deliberately suppress this fact. They know it. They're not innocent. <laughs> they just, you know, I just can't believe those things. Yeah, oh, it may be couched in very scholarly words and they may pontificate, but the bottom line is they're not going to believe what the Lord would have, right? Um, well, Peter gives us three arguments why that is bogus, all right? And he starts off, and the first of these is creation itself indicates that God has been intimately involved with His creation. Did you catch this? 
Look what he says. The Word of God existed long ago, and it formed. So you've got the Word of God utilizing water. Well, he says, out of the water, the earth came. And that reminds us of Genesis, right? The whole creation where water is pulled back so land can be exposed. And he says, and he, he did it by means of water. That phrase is a little difficult. What in the world does he mean by that? Um, I, I think Mu might be correct in his argument. I think I listed this there in your notes. Um, by means suggest the water served as an instrument in forming the, the world. It could be more of a rhetorical idea because he's going to say the earth in one sense was created in the midst of water. It's going to be destroyed by water. This is going to be a second argument. So it works either way. Um, but again, he's highlighting that the false teachers have missed the mark and they are far from innocent. Notice, by the way, the false teachers don't deny there's a creation. That's really interesting. They, they, know, they recognize there's a creation. It's just they're denying that God was intimately involved. He might have wound the clock and let it go. But uh, sound familiar? Uh, but he's saying, no, 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 no. Uh, and so his first argument is that. Question on the first one is God was intimately involved. I had a former colleague. She had a doctorate in chemistry from Ohio State. And uh, she, it was in her doctoral work that she, in genetics, uh, she said, uh, I stopped, I remember, she said, I can still remember to this day, I stopped in the lab and said, no, there's something far greater <laughs> than just us. And shortly thereafter, she became a believer. Um, looking at God's creation, God is intimately involved. We all know that. I'm pre preaching to the choir. So argument one is that. Argument two, he says, well, look at the flood. God has already judged the world in the past. And, and this is... It says in verse 6, through these things. I think these things is the Word of God and the water. The Word of God is going to play a role in all three of these. Look at it. It's in the Word of God, the heavens existed, verse 5, verse 6. I think that's the word here. It's the, the most immediate reference or uh, referent here. In verse 7, we also see... Uh, that the, by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved. So the word of God plays a role in all three of these. Very significant. The word that the, the false teachers are denying, saying it doesn't matter, he's saying yes it does because it played a role and it has already judged once before. I think of already in chapter 2 verse 5, it says, If he did not, God did not spare the ancient world, reference to the flood, when God brought a flood of an on an ungodly world, why would He not do it in the future, right? And so the same word that created the world has also judged the world. And so to the false teachers, He says, listen, argument one, no, God was intimately involved. Argument two, He's already judged before. Catastrophic event. By the way, <laughs> uh, this creates real problems for those who want to state that the Bible is just a bunch of fables and stories. Um, because you not only have to deny Genesis accounts, now you're going to have to deny Peter, right? It's both Old and New Testament. There is an assumption that this, these were true events. There was a true flood. There was a true creation. Uh, so it, interesting, right? Argument three then, and this is where it gets a little uh, pointed to the false teachers, is that there's already a judgment waiting for you. <laughs> you're already, the ax is already there. Um, since water can no longer be used, as God has promised via the, to Noah, God will employ fire for the final judgment. 
This is not foreign to Scripture. The idea of God using fire for the ultimate judgment we can see in several texts. Just, just turn to Zephaniah. I know you had your devotions there this morning, so it should open right up. Uh, if you get to Malachi, you went too far. That's the last book, Zechariah. Go back two more books, Haggai, and you get to Zephaniah. Don't you love these minor prophets? They're all kind of just nestled right together. Zephaniah. If you need a, a name for a boy, that's a good one. Zephaniah. 118. It says, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, which is, I think, the judgment of God that looms. In the fire of his jealousy, he will make a complete end. Indeed, it's a terrifying one. That, that's what waits in them. And Peter's saying, you can, you can poo-poo that all you want. But just as sure as God created the world and just as sure as He judged it once before, He's going to judge it again. God's word will not come back void. It will work. Yeah, Kyle. Yep, well, and that still holds here. In fact, showing you my cards a little bit for next week, he says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise. So in other words, this idea that has taken him this long, the reason he's doing it, it says, because he does not wish for any to perish, right? He wishes for all to come. That's why there's this delay, not really a delay. <laughs> it's a gracious time gap uh, because it's, it's already in motion, you're not going to change it. Uh, false teachers can say whatever they want. But notice what he says at the very last line of verse 7, by being kept for the day of judgment, the destruction of, and there it is, the ungodly. Just like the angels that left their domain earlier in, the, in Second Peter that we looked at, just like those of Noah's generation, just like those of Sodom and Gomorrah, as which Peter addressed all three groups, this judgment waits, and they will not be exempt. Don't care how wonderful the rhetoric is. So in verse 4, when they ask, where is his promised return? Oh, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Because his word has stated it. It is sure. And that's why Peter stated earlier in chapter 1, look at chapter 1, verses 20, uh, 19, 2 Peter 1.19, moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. You do well if you pay attention. Recall the things of the Lord. Don't let atrophy sip, sink in. And again, I'm preaching to the choir. You're here at a Bible study this morning. Keep it up. It also lets you know, I think, that... Uh, the fundamentals of the truth we need to hear over and over and over. Uh, it's good to hear a testimony every now and then, isn't it? Just to be reminded. Um, seeing that guy led to the Lord last week, seeing the Lord work through that situation, it's just humbling. It's like, okay, this is a great reminder. We are all saved by grace. And there is a day coming. 
Well, let me give you three things to hang on your beak as you walk away today. The first of these is the larger evolutionary worldview, the macroevolutionary notion, fails to account for God and His involvement in the world. No matter how you slice it, it eliminates God. And that is foreign to the Old Testament, and obviously, as we've seen here with 2 Peter, it's foreign to the New Testament. Look at Psalm 33. Just look at this text briefly. Psalm 33, 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, there it is, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. You know, you, you eliminate God as the Creator. They don't have to stand in awe. <laughs> they stand in awe of themselves. Look how wonderful we are. And God says, For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people, but His counsel will stand forever. Isn't that a great text in light of Second Peter? The Lord stands. He's sovereign. And again, we all know that. It's just a reminder. God is intimately involved. Secondly, our theology, and I've harped on this many, many times, must, not, or must be determined by Scripture, not by personal preferences, experience, or feelings. And that's the problem with the false teachers. They're trying to redefine theology based on their experiences, based on their own personal desires. And that's really dangerous. And that is far more insepid in the church than I think we want to admit. I'll be real honest with you. Um, well, you know, I was born this way, or this is, it works for us, you know. Um, met with a couple that's heavily involved in two different churches, and uh, they're cohabitating. They have no problem with it. <laughs> you know, it's just this idea, you know, and, and you, you talk with them and they're doing these cartwheels over the text to try to, to accommodate their lifestyle. The Gall I was just looking at the recent Gallup polls. This is, a, this is startling. Maybe it's not. I don't know. In 1984, 40% who were polled in the Gallup polls stated that the Bible was actual word of God. And only 16% argued it was a fable. This was in 1984. Now listen to the stats now. In 2017, 24% said it was actually the Word of God, almost half. And 26% thought it was a fable. There are more who thought it was a fable than they thought it was actually the Word of God. Consequently, it should not surprise you. Because later they ask, how important is religion in your own life? Listen to these stats. In just in 2002, it was 61%. 61% said religion was very important. And this is, this is given to anybody, all right? So not just Christians, Buddhists, Muslims. In the United States, religion is important. In 2018, less than 50%. You say, well, but that shouldn't surprise us, right? If the Word of God is no longer seen as, as the actual Word of God, no wonder people are losing the wheels off their tricycles and religion's not significant. Yeah. Could you not argue that uh, your experiences where something happened to you, a uh, false experience with 
instead of just saying boldface, no, they don't matter. Yeah, I, experience is leading us down the wrong path. It's, it's more always no, no, subtle. No, no, the right path. Oh, yeah, they can. And that's, that's James 1, right? There's circumstances of life. Uh, for the one who runs to the Lord and, and seeks wisdom, God grants it. For the double-minded man who doubts God. And that, that's the end of the day what the false teachers are doing. They're not doubting how God is going to work out. They're doubting God. That's the bottom line. And, and that's the danger of, I think, our culture today as it was then. Uh, we're no different. So our theology and the third point, which goes very close hand in hand, the impending judgment is another reminder as followers of Jesus, we cannot compromise. That's the real danger of the dear friends that Peter is writing to. Uh, the false teachers, they're under judgment. <laughs> He's concerned about the church, right? And that they might compromise the truth and play into the, the, buy into the rhetoric. We cannot compromise the truth for cultural acceptance, unity, or personal desires. Look at Proverbs chapter 2, and we'll end with this. Proverbs chapter 2. Two through five. Make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. That was my prayer for you this morning. As I sat there coughing over a cup of coffee at five o'clock with more prednisone, um, I thought, Lord, may we have discernment and wisdom that you give. Help us to know you. And may we not forget what you have done. Those stones of remembrance, right? Um, there's an anniversary that my wife and I remember and as a family, and it's just a, it's a mile marker. It's a, this is how God provided. May we not forget that. And teaching our children, look, look what God has done. <laughs> May we not forget this. David Wilkerson stated, how quickly we forget God's great deliverances in our lives, how easily we take for granted the miracles he has performed in our past. May we not be like the Israelites and have a generation that doesn't remember. It's our responsibility as men. If you have children, grandchildren, help them rehearse these things, right? Give them a stone and write something on it. <laughs> Don't forget it. Yeah. Yes, Eugene. Well, we need to be lighthouses of the truth, right? And rehearse what God has done, not just for us, but collectively as a people. 
I mean, to live in the United States, look what God has done for us, right? May we not forget. Father, help us to have minds that remember well. (laughs) We serve a great God. Thank you, O Father, for what you've done for us. Why should we be downcast? Why should we be troubled? For our hope is in you, and we will praise you. You are our help, and you are our God. And so, Father, today, as these men walk out of here, I just pray that you would encourage their hearts. Help them to recognize that even in the midst of a chaotic world in which we live, and that chaos may be in their very own homes, may they not lose sight that you, God, are sovereign. And just as you created the world, just as you have judged it once before, uh, the wicked are not (laughs) going to get scot-free. There's a day coming when you will deliver the righteous, just as you did Noah, and Lot, and you will judge those who have refused to bend their knee before you, Almighty. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.